So listening is not to be confused with being quiet and letting the other person speak. That's not listening. Listening has at its core reception. That is the ultimate goal is to really listen. And as you're listening, not to filter the material, the information that you're getting through the patient, um, through your education or your personal preferences or your morals or your ethics or your judgments. You know, just simply to be there and, and listen. Bedside Manor. This is a podcast about the human side of helping people, and I am your host, Juliana. I'm a Katona yoga teacher, a student of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, and I actually invented using the word like too many times in one sentence. Now, I'm so delighted that you're here, and even more delighted to tell you that the star of today's show is Anne Cecil Sturman. Anne is a superstar, premier classical acupuncturist. She's a writer and a mentor to so many of us studying Chinese medicine, especially those of us who love classical acupuncture. Now, I've been obsessed with Anne since I first got my grubby little hands on her book, Advanced Acupuncture. And that was really around the time when I first started to get disgruntled at school learning TCM day in and day out. So I was on a clinic shift and my favorite supervisor, shout out Stenmark, pulled out Anne's book and I was just, I was blown away. Immediately I was like, okay, (laughs) pause. Where do I find out more about this? Why aren't they teaching more of this to us upstairs? Um, what is this? This is amazing. Um, you, you know, I just had one of those moments where I was, I was just so hungry for more information. And I think that that is mostly because Anne, well, it's, it's because the theory is poetic and beautiful and, you know, has all that sort of sparkly magic that makes, makes me love Chinese medicine to begin with. But Anne has a really, really innate skill for making big ideas and big theory, very approachable and practical and um, human. So I've taken it upon myself to sort of get as much Anne in my life as possible. And I'm very grateful that she agreed to chat with me and to share this conversation. The first half of the show is mostly Anne's origin story. Uh, which is incredible, and she she tells us how she met her teacher, Jeffrey Yuen, which I'm sure many of you have, have also heard of. Um, and then the second half is when we get into the nitty-gritty of what Anne's sessions are like, and she gives the best advice I've ever heard about listening, which she approaches from a u- very unique perspective because she is also trained as a musician, like I am. So 
was very grateful for the advice that she gave me and for what she said to me right before we started recording, which was that being a performer is one of the best prerequisites for being a good acupuncturist. And that alone made me want to cry, but I didn't. You'd be so proud. I was so chill. But something very dramatic did happen right before the interview. And this is where I have to offer you a slight disclaimer. I have this little adapter thingy for the microphone that I use, and it allows me to charge my computer and record at the same time. However, it broke seconds before Anne and I were supposed to meet. And I didn't really know what was going on, and I was kind of nervous to talk to Anne, so I didn't want to invest too much time into sorting out the technology also because technology is not really my strong suit so I just thought fuck it the computer will pick it up I didn't you know I just didn't really know how how dire the audio situation would be which leads me to my disclaimer and that is that my audio because my microphone wasn't working um, is quite shit but the good news is Anne's is great and that's all that really matters so Enough about me. I'll come get you after the show. I can't wait to talk about it with you. But for now, please, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to welcome to the stage Anne Cecil Sturman. Enjoy. And some people call me Annie, but uh, not not uh, in public, it seems. But it's... Um, I can be called anything, but never, never anything formal. I don't like formality. I don't either. <laughs> you are, would you like to tell us what your job is? Oh, I'm an acupuncturist and a teacher. And a writer. And a writer, yeah. And a mother and a wife. <laughs> um, your approach to acupuncture is very much unlike what gets taught in most schools in the country and certainly my school my school has a, a bit but how did you find your nook of the acupuncture world mm. that's a terrific question and you know you say that the way I practice is not really reflected in most acupuncture schools but it was very much reflected in the acupuncture school that I went to um, which was run by Dr. Jeffrey Yuen, and unfortunately uh, purchased by a venture capital firm in 2011 and closed down, one of the great, great tragedies in education of any nature of any time, because that school really, with Jeffrey at the helm, um, captured and transmitted the idea that what we are doing is heart-centered medicine and it's 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 a heart-centered medicine that is based in the spirit and with its primary um anchor being the ling shu um and the su win where we're taught that the the root of all illness is illness of the spirit illness of the shen so it's very spiritual medicine. It's not mechanical. Um, it can't be measured. And, and so 
I don't think I don't consider myself to be operating in a new in a unique way. It just feels as though it's in alignment with the intention of my teacher. What drew you to that approach? <laughs> well, um, it's actually an interesting story. So I had a very unfortunate and nasty uh, miscarriage over 20 years ago. And, you know, I was really, I was fresh in the United States. I hadn't been here long. I didn't have a work permit. Um, uh, so I, I landed here and, you know, we really wanted to start a family as soon as possible. And then this miscarriage threw a spanner in the works. And um, the night that that happened, uh, I had a friend staying with me, my friend Margaret and uh, Andrew, my husband. He's, he, he tends to be in a different country for every disaster, like Hurricane Sandy, he was in Argentina. For, for my miscarriage, he was in Istanbul. <laughs> so he wasn't there and, and he said, uh, he said, you know, you really have to have someone there with you. And, and I said, no, I'll be okay. He said, oh, please, please get someone. So Margaret came over and about three o'clock in the morning and I'd been pacing the room for hours and hours, maybe 12 hours or so. I was just pacing up and down and unable to lie down or sit or anything like that. And she said, you know, Anne, you have to go back to the hospital. And I said, I just can't go back in there for various reasons. But so she said, well, I'm going to call my friend, the acupuncturist. And he came three o'clock in the morning on his kid's scooter and, and asked me to lie down. I said, I can't lie down. So he put some needles in me while I was walking. And, and I felt something shift. And I thought, oh, this is most unusual. Now I had had acupuncture before um, quite often in Australia. And my mother was a regular acupuncture patient in the late 60s in Australia. So she was one of the first people in Australia to adopt acupuncture as her primary medicine. And, you know, the, my brother and I and, and my dad we would drive to Footscray to Dr. Chang's office and wait in the car outside while she had her, you know, her treatment and she would always get back in the car and she would be utterly transformed. And I felt this kind of transformation happening. And in the morning um, when I woke up, I said, um, I said to myself, I, this is what I have to do. I absolutely must find out what this, what this medicine is and practice it. It just felt like it landed on me in a very profound way. And later I found out that the treatment that I was given was very, very simple, very, very simple treatment. So it wasn't like it was, you know, um, some kind of flamboyant acupuncture, you know, or, or virtuosic acupuncture. And yet it was virtuosic in the way that it was practiced. So then I um, immediately, within a couple of days, really, um, started looking for schools. And at that time in New York, there were only three schools. 
And so I uh, got on the phone, as you did in those days, and I ordered the catalogues and the catalogues came one by one. And then I went to visit the schools one by one. And the first school, um, the staff there was very unwelcoming. And I thought, well, that's a sign. I can't go here. And the next school I went in and it felt like a business school. You know, we're going to teach you how to set up your business and we're going to teach you how to um, get your patients in. And, and it felt very, it didn't resonate with the experience that I had had. And then in came the catalogue from the Swedish Institute Acupuncture School, now defunct, and uh, Jeffrey's letter was in the front. And when I read the letter, it was so beautiful. And it was so much about um, the immeasurable gift of acupuncture and how it can be learned. And I thought, oh, that's, that is my school. And I turned the catalog over to read the address on the, the back of the envelope. And I realized that if I looked out my bedroom window and craned my head just a little bit, I was looking straight into Jeffrey's office. He's he, so his office on the seventh floor of of Twenty um, Sixth Street. I could see from my apartment on Twenty Fifth Street. With the, so it's a, well, this is a sign. Yeah, as clear as they get. <laughs> so I just went around the corner and just got the paperwork and enrolled immediately. And I was in school within three weeks, I think, starting straight away. So that's how that happened. And um, the first year was very difficult. Jeffrey taught none of the first year. He didn't teach any of the, of course, first year, as you know, is all anatomy and physiology and myology and you know, biology and all the ologies and, and of course, um, and, and point location, but Jeffrey also did teach point location in the second year. And so you had to get all that basic stuff out of the year, the way in the first year. And then um, to my great fortune, he taught all the classes in second and third year. So I had, I was just completely bathed in this remarkable teaching. And um, actually it was so incredible and I was not working at the time Andrew put me through school my husband um, and so I used to go and sneak into I would gate crash other classes I think I took the divergent course three or four times just gate crashing other classes and sneaking up the back and you know, he knew I was there but I was careful not to ask any questions and you know <laughs> So it was like an addiction. And then once I graduated, I um, and when I graduated, I had a baby and I, you know, immediately started traveling and I would, the whole family would get on planes and we would go all over the country and, and to Canada. And then I had two children and, and if Andrew couldn't go, I had someone come to be a nanny and, you know, thousands of hours outside of, um, of post-graduation study with him too so it's and I'm still studying I was studying with him on on uh yesterday actually yesterday 
took the the needling class that was um, online. It, it, you know, it just doesn't stop. What what struck me many parts of that story struck me, but the idea that acupuncture is this immeasurable but learnable thing, I can't help but see the parallel between bedside manner and acupuncture itself because acupuncture is an immeasurable process where you're just sort of working with the dynamics of a situation, whether it's in a person's body or between two people. Right. Well, I think it's not an intellectual study, although there are certain principles that you could write down and learn, but you can understand the principles of bedside manner and still not be able to produce it energetically in the room. So that kind of learning comes from being with people, I think, from, from learning. And in fact, on with my website at the moment, my team and I were trying to work out a way that we can impart this, this knowledge of how to be with the patient in a way that is not intrusive that's inviting and that also allows their heart to open. And the, it's very, very easy to position yourself as a practitioner and find your patient or your prospective patient in the room um, close up. Right? That's, that can happen. You, you say one thing that they don't like to hear or or you talk down to them as an expert, or um, you hear something that they, they say and you've instantly got an opinion about it. These are all alienating things to do. So I think the, the most important part of bedside manner is listening. And, and hopefully, I mean, as you collect these podcasts, um, that might become a theme. I think that the ultimate goal is to really listen. And as you're listening, not to filter the material, the information that you're getting through the patient, um, through your education or your personal preferences or your morals or your ethics or your judgments, you know, just simply to be there and and listen and hear to let it in. And then, you know, you could take that another step. If if you you can pretend to listen or you can think that you're listening. So you're sitting there and you're looking at the patient and you're just being quiet as they speak and you think that you're listening. You think that you're hearing, but you're not doing that at all. You, you're being... So, so listening is not to be confused with being quiet and letting the other person speak. That's not listening. Listening has, at its core, reception. And if you really open yourself up to listening, what you get from the patient can, it must penetrate your wagey level. It must penetrate you know, if you were to put it in, in kooky language, say, I love kooky language sometimes, but, you know, if we think about the aura, you know, your aura, which in, you translate that into Chinese medicine, you're really talking about defensive chi. 
weighty and we all must have our weighty up at times right you know you're standing in the wind um you're your weighty must be able to defend you you're you jump in a cold pool boom weighty has to come up so you get oh after a while i feel quite warm in this cold pool right that's weighty acting um but if your weighty is up um, when you're in the presence of a patient, they will feel that and they won't know what it is. What are you defending yourself against as a practitioner? Are you defending your position as an authority? That's a big hole, right? I'm, I'm superior in knowledge in this room, right? And this is the energy that I'm going to hold around me so that you don't forget that I'm in charge here and I know more than you. That's terribly alienating to a patient and many many practitioners don't even know that they have that up they don't understand that they are in a defended position with the patient so number one is to be in a in a position of humility this is one reason i don't have a desk and and when I can help it, sometimes it's necessary, but so when I can help it, um, I don't wear a lab coat. I tend to wear white, which we could talk about that later if you're interested, but, but um, I have a big, long leather sofa. It's probably 92 inches long. And I just, I sit at one end in a very relaxed manner, but not disrespectfully relaxed, you know, not, not like feet up or, you know, <laughs> anything like that. And the patient, I invite them to sit at the other end. We're not too far apart, but we're far apart enough. You know, far apart for them to feel that I'm not on top of them. And then I make sure that my head is lower than their head. So if I'm treating, uh, like say, a, a four-year-old, you know, I, I will actually get down and I'll even maybe sit on the floor and put my elbows on the sofa and turn my head and chat to, chat to the child. So once you've established that this is not a game of knowledge, that it's not a game of superiority, that that you're not in charge, that they are in charge, then the defences are down and you can get limitless, that's the beginning, that will be step one, you, you could get limitless amounts of information from that patient. They won't even know that they're, how much they're speaking and revealing or revealing through gesture or revealing through expressions on the face. They won't even be conscious of it because they, they are in a situation where, and for many people, it could be very rare for them that they are constantly in defensive mode at home. They don't get along with the people in their own home. They can't speak to their children. They, they, uh, they're at odds with their spouse. There's a background argument going on all the time. So there's an element of defense. And, and finally, they're in a room where 
they have this strange feeling that they can let anything go. And very often, in my office at least, people will sit down and within like two minutes they're in tears. They start telling you their, their issue and away they go. It's, it all comes out, it all spills out. And then the job is just to be, be quiet. And the first thing I say to them is I say, oh, that's okay, that's part of the healing. Just let it go. Just let it come out, not let it go, let it come out. It's just part of the healing. And they'll say, I don't know why, I don't know why this just happened, you know. <laughs> and I never explain it, you know, I just sit in that space. Then you've already begun the healing. You haven't even taken the pulses and you've already begun the process of the healing, which is to take their fight down. First of all, take the fight down, settle down, just be a little bit calmer and get a glimpse of true nature under that um, either illness or trauma. That's beautiful. How do you make sure that you are available to listen? I'm imagining this, this feeling like you're listening without your mind. You're listening with everything else. Yes. Oh, beautifully said. That's perfectly said. You're listening without your mind. Well, you know, it's very important for practitioners to meditate every day. That's extremely important to get really centered. And, um, and also, it's also important for practitioners to understand, and for everyone really, I think, is to understand that it's the nature of the mind to think. So as your patient is speaking to you and you think, oh, my goodness, I hope I lock the front door. Let's say that, for example. I don't, I don't remember turning the key in the front door. Oh, my goodness, you know. To, to understand that that's a part of being human that we cannot control. Our thoughts are not really our own. They're just landing from the air. <laughs> they land, they go through, they exit new ones come through and they exit and you'd have to be some kind of uh, freak I think to have a whole interaction with a, a patient and not have a thought that was uh, out of place <laughs> that's part of what it is to be human the important thing is not to attach to it mm. oh I had a thought about the front door <laughs> okay bye <laughs> Oh, I had a thought that I shouldn't have eaten that for breakfast. Okay, bye. <laughs> oh, oh, I hear someone coming in the waiting room half an hour early. Okay. <laughs> you know, just uh, having the discipline of, of not just not attaching, but also understanding that everything that is, is. There's nothing you can do about the door that wasn't locked. You can't undo your breakfast and um, you're not going to open the door and ask the patient to come back 25 minutes later. You're not going to do any of those things. It's just that's what is. And if the practitioner, while they're having these thoughts, is still able uh, to, to be disciplined in not attaching to their own thoughts as they are receiving the vocalised thoughts of the patient, the patient will feel that 
the, the practitioner is very committed and they're committed to, to hearing, to listening, to really receiving what's coming from the patient. And they, they will feel that there's a lot going on in the mind that, um, or in consciousness would be a better way of saying it, that we don't even know about. So that the patient registers exactly the, the sorry, the patient registers exactly the energetic state that the practitioner is in. Yeah. Yeah, and if you're tuned in to whatever is just floating in and out of the brain, it's palpable. It's palpable. They know you're distracted. Yeah. The focus in the eyes changes. There are little, um, you know, little uh, movements in the eyes that are all dead giveaways for you know losing concentration or pretending to be tuned into the to the patient. Mm-hmm. What do you do in situations where um, the, you? you not be sure like what your next move is with the patient or they're they're telling you this complex story and you're just sort of in the weeds there you mean about making a diagnosis or about steering what they're saying maybe both give me an example i've been in many situations where you know of course an intake is such a well I will ask, like, how important are your intakes and how much dialoguing back and forth is actually going on? Um, because I always find them very interesting and, and, and useful, but then I'm like, okay, this has been, I know, I, I, I intellectually know this person is, is actually going on too much. And like, we have to, like, I can't just like, let them be so precious about this whole story. Like they're here for my help. So when is that helping <laughs> going to start? And I, I sort of get impatient about like, okay, how do I steer this ship back into the realm where like I can actually be of service here instead of um, getting lost in this labyrinth of the other person's mind? Yeah. Well, this might seem a bit radical, but I feel that I want to bypass as many of the 10 questions as possible. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So my sessions start like this, generally speaking. They come in, I I motion for them to sit down. I say, please sit here. And then I'll say, um, so how can I help you today? And instantaneously, they have to go into what their problem is have to so you've bypassed the weather you've bypassed the state of the subway you've bypassed the treatment they got in the lobby right you've bypassed the smell in the hallway the the bleach that the guy just bleached the floor with all those things are they're not there that's five or ten minutes five six seven eight who knows how many minutes you've saved there and then the nature of your listening and the seriousness, the dedication, the commitment that that you embody as you receive, as you ask that question, is responded to by the patient, and they, and they think, "Wow, we're like, gee, we're down to brass tacks already." Okay, 
So you're into it. So you're here to do this job. You're not here. You're here to help me. You're not here to, um, you know, for pleasantries. Yeah. Yeah. God. And I think that is such a, I mean, this, this is, I'm sounding like a broken record in these podcasts that like this prevailing message that having good bedside manner is like being nice or having good chat or being mm -hmm. able to lighten the mood when it gets too intense, you know, whatever that it's like, that's such a disservice to all of us who are refining that skill. Well, if people are saying to you in their podcasts, um, it's important to, you know, establish, uh, you know, have a nice light chat beforehand to establish that everything's okay. You can bypass that very quickly, the need to spend those minutes, those several minutes or many minutes doing that. You can bypass that instantaneously and by by cultivating this one concept and that's affinity affinity you must have affinity with the patient right from the get-go sometimes affinity can be challenging right so let's say I'm running I never run more than five minutes late but I do sometimes run five minutes late I never run six minutes late. I, 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 that's my limit is five. There's one patient that I have who is very upset if I'm five minutes late or four minutes late, sometimes three minutes late. And, and <laughs> you might think, well, why, didn't, why haven't you gotten rid of this patient? But... I figure that's nothing to do with me. That's she's showing me her pathology, right? When when people are, are behaving in a reactive way, they are demonstrating their pathology to you. So part of what um, part of her treatments, um, well, it, I think I'm digressing a little bit, but that tells me that a portion of her treatment needs to be dedicated to getting her in present time. So at one minute past 11, I'm still sitting here, but you know, everything's okay. And at two minutes past 11, I'm still sitting here, but everything's okay, right? And three minutes past 11, I'm still sitting here, but everything's still okay, actually. You know, that would be a part of the treatment. So I might be doing something like, you know, chow channels or something to get her to really occupy the present moment. And that's without judgment. What I'm saying is that she goes out of balance when her perception of her control of time is upset. So that's not that's not to fix her so that I feel better, right? That's that's for her to be to be in a calmer state that, so that she can heal. But anyway, getting back to the point, when I open the door and and see her her there with her, now she'll never tell me. But with her, you know, stern face, with the glance at the watch, right? This like the glance at the watch and the stern face. I've got a couple of choices there. I can react to that. I can say, oh, she has no idea why I'm five minutes late. Like I had someone like actually 
with a, a bleed that I couldn't stop when I removed a needle and I couldn't stop that bleed and that took me five minutes to stop and and if only she knew that it's because I'm really caring about the patient before her you know and so that would be all my reactivity coming up about why she's um, presenting the way that she is when she opens the door once I react defensively to that the treatment is dead it's done that I can get nowhere with that because I've closed off my energy to her she's closed off her energy to me it's um now we're just going through the motions and it's a hollow exchange but if I open the door and I see the reactivity and and I see that energy and I feel that energy which is like slight aggression toward me this is unusual by the way but and and I see that and I feel that over there in her space so I feel I feel the upset but I don't feel it coming toward me I feel it over there in her field experienced in her body yes I can experience that over in my space if I choose to allow that to happen I can I can do that and that would be very unpleasant and then or I could experience it in her space which gives me more of a reading of where she's at and leaves me free to be detached from that energy once I'm detached from her energy if I remain detached from that energy then I have tremendous purchase on the space in the room I can hold that space um, in way open so that all possibilities are available whereas if I were defensive then I can't create any space in the room I've already locked myself off from my own office yeah isn't that an interesting idea you're you're in your space and somehow you're forbidden to to be in there yes where this is making me go to is is how this how this like full body listening starts I mean oftentimes before you even see the patient before that process even starts and how potent that is how much more potent that is than exchanging some small talk right oh yes that's right you were asking me how to steer the ship so the steering of the ship you know getting straight to the point how can I help you today and then going immediately into a real receiving mode and if you're if you're pro- uh, not projecting, if you're sitting in a mode of receiving and you're ready um, and you're ready to hear, they're not going to give you the weather. They're already past that. You've steered right past that. You, you're, in, you're in serious territory here. I mean, serious work territory. And they will come out. And so they'll... Um, and very often we get to the root cause within just a few minutes. So they'll say, well, um, I've got a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, and um, how long have you had it? Well, I was diagnosed in 2012. Oh, and what was happening in your life around 2012? Well, um, let me see. Oh, well, I was um, 
I was, what did happen in 2012? Oh, I think, oh, I was getting divorced. Oh, okay. And then bang, you're right there. You've got it. You've got the cause of the rheumatoid arthritis. You, you've, now you're not going to say, oh, that's why you've got rheumatoid arthritis. But um, if you talk a bit about the trauma of the divorce, you'll find that that person was in a very, very defensive state. They, um, they were in tremendous um, turmoil. Their way she was up. It was a horrible, bitter divorce. Um, they were unable to settle down their young chi. The way she became overactive and they developed a, an autoimmune disease um, through that. I mean, we could talk about that, how that, what that mechanism is for hours. But once you've got to the time, once, once you link the initiation of the disease to an event in time, which happens, the patient is able to do that in my office, at least there, I see that happen nearly 100% of the time, they can link it. They never thought it, they didn't think of it before. Some people have, of course, but most people do not link stress with the beginning of disease. And once you connect the dots for them, and then in communicating with them, you, you almost send a message that right now we're in present time and that divorce is not happening now. The, the fighting and the negotiating and the your separation and the fight over the kids and whatever it is, that's not happening right now this instant. And you don't go there with them. You don't say to them, oh, my God, that's so horrible. And the judge was terrible. Oh, this like the, the, the justice system. What can we do about it? You know, it's in the, and, and you go in there with them. If you dive down into that energy with them, which, you know, in the guise of sympathy, you are lost as a practitioner because you cannot provide the space that is alternate to that. You can't provide a space that does not have that energy in it. The only way the patient can heal is if you provide a space that is absolutely in present time. Now, that doesn't mean you meet that with, uh, with uh, that you're callous. That, that doesn't mean you're not empathetic. You're empathetic, but at the same time, you're, you're in the now. You're right there in the moment. They sense that you're in the moment. They feel that your heart is open. You're feeling the hurt. That you, you're, you're not feeling the hurt in a way that hurts you, but you're, you're feeling the hurt without judging it. There's no judgment. It's like, oh, that's terrible I can't imagine you I can't imagine what that would be like to go through oh I'm so sorry that happened to you right you're lost say so, okay um it, I mean even if you say I'm sorry that happened that, that sounds like the right thing to say it's actually not the right thing to say because you're you're feeling regretful in, in actual fact, those events are crucial for that person's destiny. 
for that person's development, no matter how unbearable they seem. And people who've been in practice as long as I have, we've, I think we've heard just about everything you could hear, all manner of horrific things. And if, you, if the practitioner can hold to the sense that every event is an, is an intricate and indispensable part of living this life of destiny and that it is no longer happening now and that healing involves putting those events in into memory rather than constant playing out so that the body can heal um you're going to have success every time success defined as providing a space in which the patient can feel freer mm -hmm. that's beautiful i i feel you know when you said oh i'm so sorry that happened imagining myself as this like phantom patient like that to me is a form of creating resistance it's like resisting that that event happened resisting that you feel badly about that event resisting yes. the, the baggage that's associated with that event when like the truth is the event got you to the next place it's like it's got you to this part of the the curriculum right yeah exactly how do you communicate that to a patient instead of saying oh i'm so sorry that sounds terrible even if it truly did sound terrible i'll just mostly i'll say nothing i'll just nod i'll keep eye contact and and just nod mm -hmm. like I'm right I'm right here with you in this space I'm hearing what you have to say um, and I won't say anything and I'll just let it sit and then and then I'll start talking about uh, treatment principle or I'll say oh actually I'll just sit and then say okay thank you thank you for that um, I think we should go to pulses now. I'd like to take your pulse. So it's not it's anything I could say after that would be part of my judgment of it, right. whether I think I'm being judgmental or not. Mm -hmm. Anything, any word about it is putting some kind of, of value, of, of judgment, of opinion, you know, it has nothing to do with me, and yet I'm really listening. And and it might be um, when I came come out of the office, um, that story might be actually quite horrifying to me. Like if I'm hearing about a rape in detail, for example, that might be you know I might find that I'm thinking about that for a while, but not in the office. Right. In the office, it's it's being communicated, and I'm right there with them, um, but keeping the space open so that they don't feel that there's resistance to me, um, or that they can't say something. Often they'll they'll look at you and they say, "I wonder, can you?" You might be say, "I wonder, can you handle this information?" And instantaneously they'll know, "Yeah, it's okay. This is a green light." Yeah. Do you also find that patients sort of want to make you happy? They want to tell you the right thing or like, you know, 
show that they've been making progress or sort of like make themselves look good in your eyes? Sometimes um, they joke about that actually. For example, um, I'll take someone's pulse and, um, <laughs> and I'll say, oh, um, I think you might have had some pizza or a cheese or something like that and I'll smile at them and let's say they've got diabetes so it's really serious you know that's a that's a big no but I'll I'll, I'll smile at them say oh I think you had some some you know some M&Ms or something I've that's <laughs> just very slippery and a little bit flat in there and um, they'll say I knew you would find that. And, you know, it's all, it's light, the infraction's light. And then then I'll say to them, do you need to hear the, the sugar and cheese story again? Because I'm I'm happy to, to tell it to you if you forgot. It's no trouble at all. And they'll say, yeah, okay, give it to me one more time just so that I've got it straight. Or they'll say, no, it was just, you know, it was it was just an infraction. And I, I, say, I say to them, oh, it's, it, apologize to yourself <laughs> it doesn't matter to me I'm just here to shine a flashlight that's all I'm gonna treat you either way so <laughs> right right that's what we're really doing we're just shining a flashlight we're not um you know we're not we're not to be answered to yeah yeah do you um how much commitment do you sort of expect or require of your patients so much of your handiwork can be sort of undone by what's going on outside of the office. And, you know, we know that an acupuncture treatment is not like a one hit wonder panacea for anything. So it's often like in our best interest as practitioners to have some kind of commitment on the other side. And so I'm wondering how you communicate that to patients and, and what, how you sort of navigate that, knowing that people are people and won't be like the perfect patient there's no such thing well I never tell a patient what to do and I never tell I never say things, things like you cannot eat any cheese you cannot eat any sugar and you cannot um eat any gluten I don't I never say those words I'll, I'll take the pulses and find a very slippery pulse in a patient who um maybe can't stop bleeding and maybe has diarrhea and uh, can't digest any food. Let's say that's the patient. They're, they're feeling, um, they run cold, they're shivery, um, their periods are very long, um, there's undigested food in the toilet, um, they have a lot of cramping. Let's, let's say it's a patient like that. Um, now, if it were my daughter, I might say absolutely nothing cold and nothing raw for you, nothing. No going into the fridge, right? I might speak to her like that because, because she doesn't really have a choice. <laughs> but the patient always has a choice. And so the way that I present it, is as though I'm teaching a class. Mm. So I'll take the I'll find these things and I'll say, oh, um, do you do you have undigested food? Did you see undigested food in the toilet? Is your is your 
Do you have cramping between your navel and your pubic bone? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Do you run very cold? Yes, yes, yes. You're finding all these things in the pulses and they'll say, um, oh, you can see all that in the pulses? And I say, oh, yeah, it's very clear. And, um, and then I'll say, so in Chinese medical theory, when we find pulses like these, when the pulse indicates this, then um, the theory goes like this. So I make it absolutely impersonal. It, instead of you can't eat cold, you can't eat raw, it's that um, we know according to Chinese medical theory and we see it in practice and we see evidence in the office all the time that um, patients with this kind of pulse uh, respond very, very poorly when they eat cold and raw foods. In fact, they're considered to be the origin perhaps of this kind of condition. And so the advice, um, and, the th and then I'll spell out the, the, the theory, but it's never addressed to them. It's just placed there as the theory. And then they have the choice. And then they feel that, that they're not being um, dictated to. They're not being admonished. It's just, this is the theory. Isn't this interesting? And the unspoken message is, if you choose to pick up this theory and live by this theory, even if temporarily your signs and symptoms will disappear. That's the unspoken message. And they take it. People um, who are dictated to you can't do this and you can't do that, um, generally speaking, won't do it. They feel that their, their freedom has been infringed upon, their freedom to choose, that they're not coming, um, you know, to be put on a strict regimen of any kind. They're, they're there, basically they're there for information and for care. It, that's so interesting that we started talking about your own receptivity or our own receptivity as practitioners, but in so doing, you create, you sort of reflect and create the circumstances for receptivity in the patient. That's beautifully said. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, but that's exactly what's happening, yeah. That's a great way to think of it. And when they feel free, they'll just choose to do it. Patient compliance in my office is very, very high. Well, I can imagine based on what you're describing. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one patient. Uh, it, you know, everyone has a couple of difficult patients, but I've got one patient who's very, very dedicated to her enemas, to her juice fasting, um, to eating salads every day and uh, I don't want to stop her treatments um, because, frankly, she really needs them and she must be coming into the office for some reason. Um, but uh, her adherence to the, these ideas is pretty solid. And every time with that particular patient, every time I take the pulses, I just repeat the information. And, you know, frankly, I don't have a lot of time on my calendar for that patient because I'm really interested in people who are interested in, in getting better. But I'll, every time I take the pulses, I'll just spell out the same. And 
if she gets tired of hearing it, then um, she might recuse herself. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is that is that sort of your sneaky way of discharging patients? Yeah. Yeah, if you if you don't want to do the work, this is rare. I'm talking about that's the same patient that gets cross when I'm late. That's just the one patient. But um, <laughs> it's interesting that those things all run together. <clears throat> but actually, I figure that's a kind of a personal challenge for me too. Can I see this person without any reactivity? Can I learn to see that patient without any reactivity myself? That's That's the challenge there. I think that's everyone's challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I do, I do want to ask you about what we were talking about uh, before we started recording. If you wanted to say a little something about how you think, uh, well, just about the convergence of art and acupuncture, being a performer and being an acupuncturist, and why you think that um, having a background in performance helps make better acupuncturists. This is a selfish question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a great question. Um, musicians and artists are interested in what cannot be measured. Mm. Right? They're interested in the, the energy of performance. They're interested in, you know, that being a musician, you play a piece and it's gone. It's just not there. But it resonates in the ethers forever so acupuncture is like that it cannot be measured you can't measure there's no study is going to prove that acupuncture works you can't measure chi and so musicians and artists are already in that mindset what they do can't be measured either and acupuncture is the most extraordinary organization or or freeing of energy of that which cannot be measured and so you know instead of looking at acupuncture through a newtonian physical point of view it's really all quantum physics you know what you put your attention on changes that's the bottom line so you can change a note just by putting your attention on that note a different way that changes in a totally immeasurable way. And just by changing the way that you manipulate the needle, the chi going through that point changes in a completely, in a unique way that's totally immeasurable. So the notion that you can study acupuncture with, um, you know, double, double blind studies uh, it's to a musician and an artist that's it's kind of hilarious really and what we should be saying are things like my favorite example you know at the moment of death you all the physical being is there the blood the fluids the muscles the the bones the eyeballs everything is there the only thing that departed was the chi. And that is immeasurable. And that is the only thing that we are working with. Wow. Ah, oh, wow. What a note to end on. 
That is spectacular. So beautiful. Beautifully said. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Juliana, and I wish you all the best with your podcast. Thank you so much. We need to be speaking about medicine in these sorts of terms. Oh, my God. We love Anne. Oh, she's the best. If you want to get in touch with her or see what she's up to, her website, all the links and information that you need, all of that will be in the show notes. I do want to mention before you go that every day Anne offers a free 20-minute meditation. It's at 3.15 every day on the dot. She's never late. And uh, the meditation is... How it works is Anne picks two acupuncture points that she thinks would be would send a message out into the ether when used in conjunction with one another that could somehow benefit us meditating, but also the world at large. So she calls it ripples in the pond, and each meditation is like a little ripple that goes out into the ether. And I've learned so much. She only speaks about these points for like less than five minutes but I've learned more than I have learned in a lot of my classes from <laughs> from just these little like bite-sized lectures um, and more than anything it's it's really remarkable the dedication and stamina that Anne has to keep these going every single day she's been doing it all lockdown and I have seen Anne like at the beach she's wearing her signature pearls she's in the back of a car she's at the doctor's office like this woman does not stop and it's it's just amazing she's such a gift and um just just pop in it's free and you'll see what I mean once you get there how how much gold is in that short little session and then after you get your cute little butt over to Anne's website, you will see how many resources she and her husband both have available. Anne also hosts an online chat every other week with practic- practitioners who have difficult cases. She gives them, you know, like hands-on advice and, and answers questions. Andrew, her husband, has great information about nutrition there's just so much on there. And that's also what, where you'll find out information about Anne's new book, which is coming out soon. And it's about tongue diagnosis, which sounds great. Um, speaking of books, Anne's list of nightstand recommendations is legendary. It's super long and really runs the gamut. So uh, it's just well worth a peruse. And I'm so grateful that she took the time to um, list out so many recommendations. I'm, I'm slowly making my way through them. And uh, they're just, they're all great. Anne's great. You're great. Um, that's the show. <laughs> I'm so glad you came. It really would not have been the same without you. Honestly, I miss you already, but I'll see you next week. Please take good care of yourself. Please. And as always, let me know if you need anything. Love you. Bye.